sermon text for this morning comes from the book of James, beginning at chapter 1, verse 26, ending at chapter 2, verse 13. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become, become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Lord, these are very, very weighty words. You tie our partiality in with our damnation. A judgment without mercy for those who are not merciful people. It doesn't get much more serious, much more ultimate than this. So I pray now for help in dealing with weighty matters and eternal matters. I'm not just here to feel good, learn a technique. We're here to hear from you, the living God, and be shaped into the kind of people who, when they stand at the last day, will give evidence that we belong to Christ, our righteousness. So, Father, let there be a kind of peace in this room, a receptivity, a seriousness, an earnestness, a hearing ear, a docile, teachable heart. And both north and downtown in this hour, may Bethlehem be shaped into a church of increasing 
Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated diversity and harmony between cultures, races, economic and social levels, preferences and styles and tastes. Oh God, grant, I pray, that you would work a deep work in our church this day. For Christ's sake, in his name I ask it. Amen. There's a little island off the coast of Senegal called Goree Island. And last July, a very significant speech was made there. What made that island significant is that it was the island where captives from Africa were assembled and then put on the boats and brought to the New World as slaves. And the speech that was made was remarkable and gives me a a pathway into today's message. That's why I want to quote part of it. It's beautiful, it's powerful, it's humbling, heartbreaking. Now, I'm aware, as I begin this message on racial harmony like this, that there are more races than black and white. I know that. And I'm aware that racial harmony is a much more complex issue than mere color. But I have in my heart a special burden for the African-American experience. It has a unique and uniquely painful place in the history of our country. Every Asian has his story to tell. Every Native American has his story to tell. Every Hispanic person has a story to tell. Every Jew has a story to tell. But there is a special history concerning the African-American And I have a burden there, and therefore I am not ashamed, nor do I apologize for beginning the sermon this way. My assumption is, and I think it's true, that if we could go deep with that experience, if we could get our arms around that experience, if we could grow in our understanding and empathy for that experience and its ongoing reality, that the effect in our church, the ripple effect in our church would be good for every race and every culture and take us where we ought to go. At least that's my prayer. I can't create that understanding, that shared, deeper understanding across racial lines in this church. I can't create that. God can And if you would join with me in prayer, reading, study, meditation, hanging out across racial lines. That is the key, by the way. It's not sermons. It's not seminars. It's hanging out in each other's homes that makes all the difference. 
then I think God would be pleased to help us. Let me read some of this speech to you. Made on Goree Island, July 8 of last year. For 250 years, the African captives endured an assault on their culture and their dignity. The spirit of Africans in America did not break, yet the spirit of their captors was corrupted. Small men took on the powers and heirs of tyrants and masters. Years of unpunished brutality and bullying and rape produced a dullness and hardness of conscience. Christian men and women became blind to the clearest commands of their faith and added hypocrisy to injustice. A republic founded on equality for all became a prison for millions. And yet, in the words of an African proverb, no fist is big enough to hide the sky. All the generations of oppression under the laws of man could not crush the hope of freedom and defeat the purposes of God. In America, enslaved Africans learned the story of the exodus from Egypt and set their own hearts on a promised land of freedom. Enslaved Africans discovered a suffering Savior and found he was more like themselves than their masters. Enslaved Africans heard the ringing promises of the Declaration of Independence and asked the self-evident question, then why not me? The evils of slavery were accepted and unchanged for centuries, yet eventually the human heart would not abide them. There is a voice of conscience and hope in every man and woman that will not be silenced. What Martin Luther King called a certain kind of fire that no water could put out. That flame would not be extinguished at the Birmingham jail. It was seen in the darkness here at Goree Island where no chain could bind the soul. This untamed fire of justice continues to burn in the affairs of man and it lights the way before us. Now, one of the sad things about Martin Luther King weekend, third Monday of each January, one of the sad things about Martin Luther King Monday is that there are thousands, probably millions of people, mainly white people, who will not mark this day. Not racial harmony, not racial justice, not advances in civil rights because it's named after Martin Luther King. Just like there are thousands of people, mainly black people, who would not listen to that magnificent speech because it was delivered by George W. Bush, a Republican. Now, my prayer for this church is that we would be 
a people who will mark this day tomorrow for racial justice and racial harmony advances yet to be made in civil rights though it was named after an imperfect man. And that we will listen to the pain and the beauty of that speech, though it was made by an imperfect man, both representing very imperfect parties. Is that clear where I I want us to be? Moving away from right, away from left, away from Democrat, away from Republican, away from conservative, away from liberal, to Christ. We're Christians for a brief vapor on planet Earth to display what He's like. And then we're gone. Oh, that God might make us Christian. So we need a word from God. We don't need a word from Martin Luther King. We don't need a word from George W. Bush. We need a word from God. So let's go to James chapter 1. And I chose to begin the text at verse 26, even though the main point begins in verse 1 of chapter 2. Because I wanted to set the stage the way James seems to set the stage with a word about worthless religion and a word about true religion. So let's set the stage for the talk about non-partiality with a word about what is worthless religion and what is true religion. So test yourself now to see whether you have a religion which is worthless. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That's astonishing. If you don't bridle your tongue, your Christianity is a sham. That's big. Why? Because Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tongue tells the truth about the heart. And the heart's the issue with God. What's the issue, James? What do you mean, bridle the tongue? What, what are we saying that you don't like? Chapter 3, verse 8, he tells us. The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's the issue. It's what we're saying about people. So, if you don't bridle your tongue in the way you talk about people, you're not a Christian. That's big. 
Isn't that amazing? James is amazing. The way he talks to us. So, we've set the stage for our dealing in race relations. Bridle your tongue when you talk about white people. Black people. Asian people, Hispanic people, Jewish people, First Nations people, Muslim people. Bridle your tongue. Get a heart of mercy so that mercy can put the bridle on the mule of your tongue so that it takes you into avenues of mercy and truth and love and praise, whatever is true, whatever is commendable, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think and talk about this when you think black, white, red, yellow. Or you may not be a Christian. That's stage number one being set. Here's stage number two, verse 27. What is true religion then, James? If false and phony and worthless religion is religion that has no substance of mercy in the heart, bridling the tongue. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans. And widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. When the God-given, Christ-shaped mercy of the Christian heart puts a bridle on the mule of the tongue to cause it to walk in paths of love and justice, the next thing it does is take hold of the legs and put them on the path to the poor. Widows and orphans happen to be in that culture the people who destitute. Nobody to take care of them. No net. No big federal net. Just Will anybody care for me? I've lost my husband. He was my only source of income. I have a a little child, or maybe the child has lost both the parents, and there's nobody. And I thank God for Kristen Carlson and her tribe with AIDS orphans, Tanzania. Thank God for the heart in so many of you to care for the older widows of our church. When the heart of mercy bridles the tongue, it then moves to the legs and the hands and moves them toward the poor. And, and, end of the verse, keep yourself unstained from the world. Something to provoke the conservative and something to provoke the liberal. James gets in the face of leftward-leaning Democrats, and he gets in the face of rightward-leaning Republicans. 
To the one, he says, get a heart of compassion for the poor and act. And to the other, he says, take hold of personal, private morality and keep yourself pure from pornography and infidelity and little things that you think don't matter because you're into the big things of social justice. I have met social liberals who sleep around and fight for the poor. James would not be impressed. Neither is God. Something to get in the face of every human commitment and say Christ is the issue. We conform to Christ publicly, socially, politically. We conform to Christ in the privacy of our computer and our bedroom. And whether we take a pencil at work from somebody when it doesn't belong to us. Christ is our King. No political party, no social agenda, and oh, the difference he makes for everybody. So the stage is now set, and we move to the main point. It is found in three verses in chapter 2. I'm calling it one main point. It may sound like three to you, but I want to try to show you why it's one. It's... Very general, it moves to something more narrow and then moves to something very narrow and specific. James starts and moves from specific to general. I'm going to move backwards from general to specific. Here are the three statements of the main point in the paragraph. Verse 12. Live as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. So there's a big, broad statement. Live in a certain way. Hardly any, no specifics given. Just, you're going to be judged one day under the law of liberty. Big, broad statement. Live that way. And you kind of scratch your head and say, well, what, what, what? And then in verse 8, he gets more specific. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. Love your neighbor. So he moves from live because you're going to be judged by a certain law. And then he says, here's the law. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then... In verse 1, the most specific of all, don't show partiality to people because of riches. And I'm going to add, because of race. So before we leap into the rest of the text, which is all arguments, seven arguments for why we should live this way, let's just stop and ponder those three ways of saying the main point. A few words of explanation. What is partiality? I asked Talitha last night at the table, what is partiality? And at eight years old, that was a big word. She didn't know that word, so we worked on it a little bit. I'm sure there are children here who don't know the word partiality. It's not a word we use very often. So here's what it is. Kind of a general definition, and then we'll go get the illustration. And illustrations always work better than Definitions, especially for kids. But let's do the definition. Partiality is treating people, better or worse, based on something that should not be the basis of the way you treat them. I'll say it again. It's treating people or having an attitude toward them, better or worse, 
on the basis of something that shouldn't be the basis of the way you're treating them. So now let's get the illustration. Verse 2. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you... Now, this is partiality. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down here by my feet. That's partiality. And the point of James is don't do that. Don't think that way. Don't feel that way. Don't base your treatment of people on things like money. Now, you may ask legitimately, how are you going to turn this text into a race text? Because it's about money. This is a riches text, not a race text. And here's the way I'm going to do it. I took the word partiality, and I looked it up everywhere else it occurs in the New Testament, just to see how it's viewed elsewhere. And it's used, the noun here is used three times more. And they're all about race or texts very relevant to race. And let me give you one of them. Romans chapter 2. You don't need to look it up. The issue is Greek and Jew. Now, there you got ethnic, tradition, racial, religious tension. Greek and Jew. And Paul's point in Romans 2, 8 to 11 is both are sinners and both are coming into judgment And he gives this reason, verse 11, for God shows no partiality. So, uh, yes, I'm taking this issue of God shows no partiality about ethnicities, Jewish or non, and I'm bringing it into this text. Because I think I have enough going for me here that James and Paul are in sync with each other. One happens to be using ethnic issues, and one happens to be using money issues. But if you were to ask them, stand them together, how do you feel about what Paul said? How do you feel about what James said? They would both say, the issue is partiality here and basing your behavior on things that ought not govern your behavior. One other piece of explanation before we look at the arguments. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What's that? This is really, really important. What is the law of liberty by which, under which, we will at the last day be judged? James doesn't define it. He uses it a couple times, but he doesn't define it. So let me try to take the big picture of the New Testament into account and tell you what I think it is, and you can assess. Galatians 5.13 says this. This is Paul talking about our freedom and yet our constraint in that freedom as Christians. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, liberty, brothers, only Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So here's the big picture. 
Christians, when they put their faith in Christ, or anybody in this room, when you put your faith in Christ, you are freed from the condemnation of God because of your sin and freed from the dominating authority of that sin. And you are sent to live in that freedom for freedom. Christ has set us free. James five. I mean, Galatians five one. So live in freedom. And then the question, of course, arose and arises. All right. In that freedom. Do we give way to lawlessness and flesh? And the answer in James and in Paul comes, no. In the liberty, there's a law. It's called the law of liberty. In the liberty, there's a governor. In the liberty, there's a constraint. In the liberty, there's a guide. And they both define it exactly the same. James defines it in verse 8. This royal law of liberty is love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Paul says at the end of verse 13 in Galatians 5, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Through love, serve one another. The governor on the behavior of the Christian in the liberty is coming from inside, not outside like Ten Commandments merely. Those Ten Commandments are being transformed and affected by and warmed up by and written in here by love, mercy flowing from Christ changes everything. The person who claims to have tasted that and not and doesn't treat others that way probably has not tasted it. Both Paul and James consider love to be the natural fruit and the necessary evidence of faith in Jesus. If you're born again, if you're justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law, You love other races. And if you don't love, therefore, you should not be assured that you are a Christian. To him who shows no mercy, judgment will be without mercy. That is, you go to hell if you're a loveless person. Not because salvation is by works, but because the necessary fruit and evidence of faith in a Savior who is filled with mercy, filled with love, is love. Now, everything else in this text is argument. There are seven arguments for why we should not be partial. And here they are. I don't have time to preach on them, so I will name them and then close by unpacking for a minute the first and the last. Number one, verse one, partiality contradicts faith in Jesus as the Lord of glory. 
We'll be back to that. Number two, verses two through four. Partiality reveals a judging heart with evil thinking behind it. Number three, verse five. Partiality to the rich contradicts God's heart because he has chosen so many of the poor for himself. Number four, verse six, first half of the verse. Partiality dishonors people created in the image of God. Number five, verses six at the end through seven. Partiality towards the rich backfires and becomes your downfall. Isn't it the rich that take you to court? Number six, verses nine to eleven. Partiality makes you a transgressor of the law of liberty and brings you into judgment. And number seven, verse 13, partiality is not mercy. And if you don't show mercy, you perish. Now, before I take the last and the first and say a word about them, pause with me here to marvel at something. Does it ever strike you as amazing? And precious and wonderful that God doesn't just tell you to do things and walk away and says, I said so. That's why. Don't be like that as a parent. I know there come times when a four-year-old asks his 80th why and you say, I'm your mother. That's why. I know that's okay. It's okay. But as a child grows into fullest, mature personhood, don't deal with them that way because God doesn't deal with you that way. Seven reasons strike you as amazing that the God of the universe would not just say, I said don't be partial, that's why, and then go on to a new topic. Seven arguments to our souls. Why does he do that? Here's the reason. We are no longer slaves. I no longer call you slaves. I call you children, sons, daughters. The slave is out there and doesn't know what his master is doing. Just do it. The the sons and the daughters are in the council chambers. They hear the whys and the wherefores. Why? So that when they obey, they can say, it is good, it is wise, it is beautiful. Not just, he said so, I don't know why, seems dumb to me, but I do it. That is not the kind of obedience God is after. I learned that when I was 22 years old, that the Bible is not a string of pearls. It's a chain of arguments. Didn't see it for 22 years. I had to be shown it by Dan Fuller at Fuller Seminary. Because, therefore, in order that, although, because, so that, in order that. I'd never seen them. The most important words in the Bible. Now I close by looking at the last and then the first of these arguments. Verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is very simply an exposition of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be sown mercy. James simply gives the dark side. Show no mercy, 
get no mercy at the last judgment. A Christian is a person who has seen and tasted and lives on the mercy of God in Christ. That's who you are. This will be very clear here now. You do not get a saving relationship with Jesus by finding human willpower and techniques to become a merciful person and then say, did I measure up? Will you take me now, Jesus? That will never happen in a million years. Rather, Jesus comes to us as sinners. He folds us into his forgiveness and his justification by faith alone. And we are so stunned, so awakened, so marveling at the mercy we've been shown that we are crushed to the ground in our pride, elevated in happy, humble security and oozing mercy. Are you oozing mercy? If not, have you tasted mercy? Have you felt how horrible you are, how unworthy you are to be accepted, and then felt his arms absolutely undeserving around you, saying, I will pay your debt, I will be your righteousness, and find yourself flying with gratitude and joy and peace? You're telling me somebody that's experienced that? will walk out and say a slur against a Jew or a black person or an Indian? No. No. Not a person who's seen the cross. Not a person who's been absolutely devastated by the mercy of the cross. Not a person who lives minute by minute on mercy. No, no, no. That's why it is not salvation by works to say to those who show no mercy, the last judgment will be merciless. Not because mercy earns anything. It's fruit growing on a tree of absolutely unmerited favor from Christ dying for us on the cross. It's whether you've seen it, whether you savor it, whether you treasure it, whether you've been leveled by it and raised up into the humble, joy, meek, kind, merciful person that the cross produces. That's the issue. Not salvation by works. So that's the argument. Don't show partiality in your merciless attitude towards the poor or the race that you have the hardest time with. Last argument, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But what hit me here is this. Evidently, James feels in his bones a contradiction between 
trusting Jesus as the Lord of glory and speaking partially, acting partially towards the rich or towards race. Why, I ask? What is it about the glory? Because that's what receives the emphasis in this verse. Lord of glory, Lord of glory. Why is it that faith in the Lord of glory turns us into impartial people? And here's my effort at an answer. Partiality towards the rich or towards races comes from one of two things, I think. It comes from a craving for human glory or it comes from fear that we won't be as safe as we'd like to be. We butter up the strong either to be protected or to get praise. And James says, if you trust the Lord of glory, you got all the glory you need. He's your glory. What you need glory from man for. And If you've got the Lord who's got glorious strength and glorious wisdom and glorious mercy, you've got all the security and safety you need. What you need to niggle your way into the favor of the rich for or the powerful. Forget it. You've got Christ, the Lord of glory. I think that's the way his mind's working when he puts the emphasis on Lord of glory in relationship to the temptation to partiality. So, as I close, I simply invite us all, trust the Lord of glory. Right now, repent of everything that contradicts faith in the Lord of glory. And if you trust the Lord of glory, if He's your glory and He's your glorious security, then that glory is going to put you in your place and make you safe there. And out of that humble, lowly, safe, happy place flows mercy to people, not partiality. Let's pray. Father, bring us to repentance and bring us to faith in the Lord of glory, I pray. Lord, work a deep work in our church. Make us a humble people. Give us thick skin when those around us fail us in their words. Cross racial lines or any other way. Give us the capacity to be slow to anger, slow to wrath, quick to listen. The anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Meek, patient, kind, lowly, forgiving one another as we have been forgiven in Christ. Oh, that mercy might abound at Bethlehem. May last week's sermon just continue to break over us with humility. 
being willing to eat crow for our 10% of the problem in a relationship, perhaps, instead of demanding that the 90% be made right on the other side. Oh, God, the implications of last week's message for race are huge, and this text is huge. Lord, work, I pray, a great meekness in our church, a great lowliness, a great ability to learn and listen and respect and love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.